What's up? It's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trans, my co-host. Of course, he is a Canucks insider, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It's pan flute season. We always look forward to your text. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> I, it, whole year is going to be pan flute season on this show with our intro now. Uh, I like it. It's, it's still growing on me. I'm I, enjoying it very much. I wish we started it a little later in the track so that the, we got more pan flute. That's my only criticism. Sure. There's a moment. Um, there's a moment early in the song where the so there's like some horns or some brass. That I thought you were going to say there's a moment in every man's life. Yes, where he realizes what he wants. <laughs> where he realizes. <laughs> there's a moment early in the song where there's like some brass or some horns, and it sounds there's just like a little bit of it, it reminds me of the old hockey net in Canada song. So I enjoyed that. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it gets me in a hockey mood to start the show oh dom was grabbing the mic but he's not actually weighing in he's just i thought he had some some real insight into, i think he's mad about the pan flute cracks uh for you it's exactly why i picked the song that's yeah thank you dom i appreciate ah, that look at that you didn't pick it for the pan flute what a producer um, so so right decision wrong process good to know there you go i love that <laughs> That's how I live my life. Bad process, but it works out somehow. We should put that on a t-shirt, sell them in a merch Right decision, store. wrong process. Hey. Canucks talk. Um, all right. So big show coming up. Uh, we're going to talk to Shana Goldman at 1230, one of our favorites from The Athletic. And uh, Jacob Mayette, Canucks Young Stars invitee from the OHL, uh, playing for the Windsor Spitfires this year, will join us at 1.30 because, of course, it is the Young Stars tournament getting going tomorrow in Penticton. You'll be there on the ground covering it. Driving up uh, today. Uh, yeah, your first road trip Carpool of the with Chris Faber and, wow. uh, and uh, Harmon Dial. Very I told, exciting. I told Faber he's got to be, like, on it with the updates to Vikings-Eagles. <laughs> so To your various parlays. <laughs> no, mostly my fantasy team. Ah, I see. That matters more. Uh, so... Looking ahead to we're we're looking ahead to young stars, but you know also just thinking about the upcoming season for the Canucks. And one of the things I was thinking about, just kind of uh, you know whiling away the time in the bullpen, getting ready for the show today, I was thinking about the Canucks players I'm I'm most and least confident in, but also mm. who I'm most and least certain in. Right, and you can be certain about a negative or uncertain about something that has a lot of upside. Right, for sure, certainty in and of itself isn't necessarily. Uh, a good thing. It could have some negative connotations as well. So like, so like volatility. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. where we're going here. Cool. And, and it was, I was kind of putting together my Canucks volatility rankings. The people I I'm think have the most volatility, and not just people, but it could be you know the power play, the penalty kill, the coaching staff, things like that. Right? What has the kind of biggest gap? Impossible outcomes, outcomes that wouldn't surprise me, and what has the narrowest? The thinnest bell curve? <laughs> I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I am. Um, no, I, I think... Of course you are. I think the the widest range of outcomes, right? And and volatility sounds bad, right? Like, people think of, mm. like, the concept of volatility is a bad thing, but sometimes, especially when you're, you know, a, a sports team, especially when you're a sports team with finite resources, like mm. in a hard-capped league, right, where you can only spend so much, 
you need volatility to insert volatility in some ways into your lineup to to reach your potential. I'll give you a 2010-11 example from the Canucks. Like Rafi Torres signed for a million dollars that summer, mm-hmm. right? Was basically like heckled out of Buffalo after he was a trade deadline acquisition, like scratched in the playoffs, um, wasn't in the best shape the season before, and languished on the open market until August, despite you know a lengthy track record of being a, a wildly imposing, some might say reckless, physical piece who also scored at like a fringe top line rate despite sort of profiling as, as a classic bottom six guy, maybe even a fourth liner. And the Canucks were able to get get him in the lineup for a million dollars because of some of those question marks that surrounded him. Well, what did he do? He crushed it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of opponents for the Canucks and, and gave them a totally different gear Right, a totally different gear in terms of their overall ability to, uh, you know, control games with that third line. So, volatility shouldn't be seen as a negative. You, you you actually kind of need some of it, and you need some of it to go your way if you're going to punch above your weight in the yeah. NHL. Well, I think especially if you're thinking about sports in general, if you are a not like a clear-cut contender or a favorite in whatever contest you're talking about, volatility can really help you, right? Volatility can be one of your paths to winning. I mean, I think about, let's say, you know, in the NCAA tournament, right? Like, how does a 15 seed beat a 2 or a 16 beat a 1? I mean, one of the ways they do it is if you have some built-in volatility, if you shoot a lot of threes, that could go really bad for you. But when it hits, you have a chance to punch well above your weight, right? So I think especially for teams that are that need something to go their way, right, that aren't perfectly built and you know at the top of whatever league they're in volatility uh can really help them in this instance so i'll, I'll go through some of mine we'll see what you think there's one player that i really want to get into so sorry you were starting with the least volatile i'll go for the least volatile so this yeah. is the this is like the, the guys most confident. i feel like really confident in. yeah and i think number one and i'm putting them together because otherwise they would i'll only do my first three here but i think because otherwise they would take up too much of the top three number one with a bullet is elias petterson and quinn hughes so like, uh, they're, they're together, the I'm going to put them together. I uh, see. I would argue, though, that Quinn Hughes is less volatile even than Elias Pettersson. Like the thing about Quinn Hughes is, like, we've seen some linear progression in terms of his defensive play. I mm-hmm. suppose, like, I think he's improved as a defensive player just as he's become like more of a m- older, just older, larger, more accustomed to the the patterns that he's trying to disrupt yeah. in an NHL more game. More experienced, yeah. all of those things. But I mean, you know, this is a guy who sort of like clockwork, like he doesn't really miss games, right? He's missed like a grand total of nine games since joining the Canucks over the past four years. He's been remarkably healthy. He's played ex- almost exactly... 25 minutes a night the last two seasons. You know you're getting 60 assists out of him. You know you're probably not getting 10 goals. And he's going to be the same guy night after night. Whereas the fact is, is that with Elias Pettersson, we've had like a fair bit of vacillation in his form. We've had really the one big low, which was what, like three, Sorry, four I would months? Not, I don't think it's fair to say there was one big low. The first 10 games of that 2020-21 season we're, we're deeply concerning. Mm-hmm. Then he sort of got back on track and got hurt. Mm-hmm. And then he struggled enormously. Like, not, and, you know, honestly, like, was at that level where I begin to toss around the word unplayable and stuff? I, I mean, you, 
we were on the air for that entire stretch, mm-hmm. and I was never like really worried because I never thought that it was possible that a player could be as good as Pedersen had been in his first two NHL seasons and then become nothing. Like this isn't, um, you know, the, the, he's not Ogletree or something. Like there was a very very low probability that yeah. he was not going to be at the very least. Like the worst case scenario for Pedersen, based on what he'd done in his first two seasons, was like Paul Stasny, who's played a thousand plus NHL games, right? Like he was obviously a good player, but. He was at those lows were so low. It was legitimately really bad. Yeah. So low. So I think I think look and that's well, and we're like we're only eighteen months removed from that. It's not like it's not long ago that people in this market were saying things like should he be reassigned to the American League? I'm putting them together mostly again for list making purposes, so they don't take up two spots on my on my top three. Got it. But I also think it's undeniable that Patterson has had a more volatile career than Quinn Hughes. Like obviously he has Quinn Hughes, you know, he'll talk about the North Division season and how how much he wanted to improve defensively and that's fair and he's done it, but mostly he's just been rock solid Quinn Hughes. But I think for this season I have very little concern about Elias Pettersson's volatility. No, right? so that's why they end up kind of together in my rankings. Like this I season, agree. I'm extremely confident they're both going to be very, very good. I would, I would. So, uh, for I mean, you can. I'll let you finish your list. I'll stop squirreling the point. That's but right. I do think it's interesting to, you know, especially when you're talking about like the very best players. Like small margins, small descriptors matter in terms of how we understand mm. their greatness. And these are two great players who I believe in fully so in some order they'd be one two but but i would just sort of pick the knit that they should be grouped together and, and i'd add one more thing Pedersen's profile right what what makes Pedersen so great is that he's a player capable of setting the table right controlling play and he's a player of capable of like feasting he's a ca- player capable of actually driving percentages which is a mm-hmm. very very rare skill even in this higher scoring version of the nhl quinn hughes because he's a defenseman, like it's impossible for a defenseman unless they're regularly like shooting off the rush to, to impact shooting percentage directly right. for the most part, like over a long, large sample of games. But Quinn Hughes is like one of the best table setters I've ever seen, and he's so steady about how he how he goes about it. The thing is, is that conversion rates, opportunism, right? Those things are always going to be a little bit more come and go. Mm-hmm. Now Pedersen does both, except when he didn't. But like for the most part, Pedersen does both. So I understand grouping them together. I'd just say that Quinn Quinn Hughes's particular skill set is like something you can count on a little bit more than Pedersen always defined. If, if you had to promote one to the number one spot by themselves, it's Quinn Hughes. Yeah, but I'll, I'll I'll group them together. Okay, number two, least volatile or at least okay. my volatility rankings. So this is where it departs from just like it's not a best players list, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> number two for me is Connor Garland. That's yeah, good. Don't one. you feel like you have a? We know exactly what we're going to get from Connor Garland, and yes, as much as he struggled to start the season last year, okay, first season in Vancouver, fifty-two points in seventy-seven games, nineteen goals, thirty-three assists. Second season in Vancouver, forty-six points, seventeen goals, twenty-nine assists. Like really slight, slight, slight decrease. Really close to a mirror season. I think we have a pretty good idea of what role he's going to be used in because yep. he hasn't worked with Pedersen or Miller, so he's probably going to be farther down the lineup. And I think we know exactly what we're going to get from Connor Garland. And it, you might, there's going to be nights where you're like, ah, I don't like that they're paying him 4.9, but in terms of volatility or lack of volatility, he's near the top of the team. Well, so, and I would bake in, like, I think with Connor Garland, it's like you, you can, in the micro sense of it in both of those seasons 
He's gone like 26 games with one goal. Like there's going to be these there's gonna stretches. There's going to be a, a rut. Yeah. There's going to be these stretches where it looks rough. But at the end of the year, you're going to be like, oh, wow, he had roughly the same number of yes. five-on-five points as ex-best Canucks player. Yeah. And and I guess the one point where I do think Garland's a little bit more volatile than that is like he went from 48 five-on-five points in his first Canucks season to 31. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's a pretty significant drop in five-on-five production. But by the rate stats, by the way, they both seasons looked pretty good. It's just that the actual drop-off was was pretty significant. Um, the gap between that, in terms of how we discuss a player and how we consider a player and and how we think about them, is big. Like Andre Kuzmenko had forty-eight five-on-five points last year, mm-hmm. and people are talking about him like a superstar player, a potential superstar player. I'm sure we'll get into that when we get into the most volatile oh, yeah. pieces, but. You know, that, that that is a pretty big gulf, even if the total numbers look the same. More than that, though, I just think you can bake in that, like, Garland's going to have stretches where the puck's not going in because he doesn't really drive percentages where it looks a little bit different. But at the end of the year, I think you're right. I think we can um, estimate within, like, a pretty narrow sort of um, range where, where Gar- like, Garland's going to have somewhere between 55 and 65 points yes. and, you know, solid underlying numbers and he's gonna, he's despite gonna, that, people are going to complain about it. <laughs> exactly, right? And there are people. There's going to be moments where he's spinning and people are frustrated yeah. uh, by it. Okay, number three on my least volatile rankings. I, I struggled with this one a little bit. Uh, I, am, I ended up, I'm going to put the power play in there. Ooh, now I'm fading that. Now, I think much like you talked about with Connor Garland, power plays run hot and cold. That's just what they do. Yep. Even really, really good power plays run hot and cold. So there are going to be stretches where it's not scoring, where it's frustrating people. I'm just betting on the talent of Pedersen, Miller, Hughes, Kuzmenko, and whoever is in that fifth spot to figure it out and be a good power play. It would be very, very surprising for me if this team was a, you know, bottom two thirds or sorry, bottom third of the league power play. That would be really surprising, right? If they if they fall off a cliff, that would be surprising for me. So I'm going to have the power play as one of my least volatile, most certain elements of the season. I would be only a little bit surprised. I, I I would not pick the power play. I don't think that's, you know, it's it's pretty hard to sustain being a great power play year over year. The Canucks were at twenty two point six percent, for example. The St. Louis Blues, who would bring you to the bottom ten, mm-hmm. right? They were they were nineteen, or let's pick the Kraken, who were twenty first, because bottom third of the league, I guess, mm-hmm. is more than just the bottom ten these days. Nineteen point eight percent, not like a huge gap. Nope. Right. I mean, the 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 difference there is you know, five or six goals over the course of a season. Um, like, it's almost imperceptible, right? Like, you you can't, with your eyes, be like, that power play was better than that power play, at least based on the power play percentage outcome that both of those teams generated. So I, it wouldn't take that much. Like, it wouldn't take that much of a fall-off for the Canucks to go from here to there. And, you know, the power play still was really effective. Like, the... The, the drop-off in power play percentage was nil, basically. After Bo Horvat left, the, the club continued to convert, you know, 22 mm-hmm. 23%. They might have actually spiked a little bit higher, although with the change in coaching staff, and there's, there's a variety of other things going on within that, I don't think you'd say, like, the Canucks power play got better when Bo Horvat left. But if you go look at rate stuff, right, the, their, their ability to generate shots, their ability to generate expected goals, their ability to generate scoring chances did fall. After losing Bohorvat, and why wouldn't it? That guy's a top 10 bumper guy in the league. Like, he's so good 
at finding space. He's so good at retrievals. Like all of the things that Bo Horvat did will be missed. Plus his left-handed shot was like a perfect fit for a Kuzmenko passing from below the goal line, but also for those little pop passes from JT Miller, who got so good at feeding him. Um, that was a weapon. In fact, that was Vancouver's huge, primary huge weapon. weapon. There's primary no power play weapon last year is gone from this team. And it was gone for 30 games and they didn't struggle. But there are signs anyway that the power play was less dynamic after his departure, at least somewhat less dynamic. Now, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what the five personnel are going to be. Uh, we don't know who's really running it. I know the Canucks keep saying like, you know, it's going to be a committee. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, <laughs> no one else is doing that, but we'll see. Um, you know, at least Rick Tockett's had success running a power play in the NHL, but you know, like Henrik and Daniel have never been behind a bench. They're they're not professional coaches. Like I'm not saying they can't be. I, I guarantee you, I would never fade the Twins' ability to do whatever they set their minds to, knowing them. But they've never done it before. Uh, and then Gonchar's a part-time coach. Mm-hmm. Like what? Do, I, I I I don't know who the fifth guy is. I don't know what the second unit looks like. Um, and and the how far the Canucks have to fall to be in the bottom third of the league is is like not a massive golf. So I'm fading that. I think what, I think the power play simply does not belong. What would you plug in there instead in terms of least volatile elements of the Canucks well, for you? Because I split Hughes and Pedersen, right, I'm lucky. You're, you're I, done. I'm just throwing Garland in and, and calling <laughs> Call, it a day. Calling it a day. All right. Yeah. Wrap it up. Um so I think <laughs> I love being I love being technically efficient. right. Efficient. Yeah. yeah. Just split it up. Uh, sorry, you know, you know who else I think is like pretty not volatile, and this is funny because he's not volatile in a macro sense, despite being maybe one of their most volatile pieces. Is it Tyler Myers? It's Tyler Myers. Yeah, I mean, I almost you're you're right in terms of I know like, exactly what the overall performance. On I know exactly shift, what I'm getting. Yeah, on a shift by shift level, incredibly volatile. Oh, yeah. On a season level, it's like, yep, that was ty- that was a Tyler Myers season. I know exactly. That's, that's a good answer. I know exactly what the Canucks are getting. Over the course of 82, I just have no idea what they're getting, on, uh, you know, yeah. game by game. On a on a 30-second to 30-second basis, you have no idea what's coming next. All but right, it'll, it'll end up looking about so, the same. So I've got, I've got Hughes, Pedersen, and then... Garland and Myers. Garland, and then Myers is 3B for me, and you've got... Pedersen and Hughes, Garland, and then the power play. Yeah, and which, I'll throw Myers in there as yeah, well, because uh, that's, that's a good one. Uh, you got um, to lose the power I play. I think most volatile... Ends up shedding a lot of light on We're gonna how the season one. is going to go, right? Like, because I think number one at the top for me, it's pretty easy. Is Andre Kuzmenko by a, by a mile in terms of what to expect? Like, predict his point total for this year is incredibly difficult. It, like, incredibly difficult for me even to narrow it down to a range, and and not just point total, right? Because that can fluctuate, and there's an element of randomness in there, and we all know the shooting percentage, but what his overall impact on the team is, what kind of role he plays, what kind of trust does he earn from Rick Tockett, all of those things, who he ends up playing with. Like, I think there's a lot of volatility inherent in all of that with Andre Kuzmenko coming into this season. No question. I mean, put it this way. If Andre Kuzmenko scores 40 and has 90 points, what percentage surprised will you be? Like... I don't know, 10%? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, Not, like, shocked no, at all. But like, oh, yeah, I would put Pedersen it, got I'd really put it even higher, like 20%. Um, how surprised would you be if Kuzmenko fails to ingratiate himself with Rick Tockett and no longer is playing 75% of his ice time five-on-five five with Pedersen but remains on the first power yeah. play unit, still puts up 50 points, but is, like, more of a middle six piece at evens for the Canucks? Yeah, not surprised at all. Not surprised at all. Not like, surprised the, at all. Like, 
to me, those feel like equally likely, and the, the gap between them is 35 points. Again, volatility is a positive, right? Like, the fact that you've got this piece who could There's go upside. nuclear again, yep. mm-hmm. uh, I think is is a good thing for the Canucks. It's just that now that he's been extended, right, it's not all upside, right? Like, there, there are some stakes to the bet that the team has placed here. Um, you know, I think a lot of fans like the bet they've placed. I even am okay with the bet they've placed on the micro of can Kuzmenko have a great season. I just, you know, yeah, in like, the macro sense, still wonder, like, d- did it make sense for where this team's at at the moment? But on the question of can he provide surplus value on his contract, on his cap hit this year, like, I think that's a very good bet. Yeah. Or, or at least a good bet. It's, it's not at least a, a fair it's bet. It's not an outlandish bet Absolutely. by any stretch of the imagination. But it, you know, Kuzmenko's in such a fascinating position because he's in... Going into training camp last year, right, he was the ultimate mystery box X factor for this team, right? Like <laughs> Schrodinger's winger. Com- coming out of the KHL and not really sure what to expect. Like, hey, if he gets 35 points on an ELC deal, you're feeling pretty good about it. And now coming off 39 goals, you know, great fit with, with Pedersen, great fit on the first power play unit. It's not just, you know, can he be productive? Can he repeat that? Can he build on that in some way? You also just look at the rest of the roster. He kind of needs to be the team's best offensive winger, right? It's it's a completely different position than he was in last year where you felt like anything they got from him was gravy. Now it's, if he's not filling the net, if he's not a great partner for Elias Patterson, well, who's it going to be? Who's going to step up and replace that production? And as much as, you know, the volatility can be a positive, that's also a little bit, uh, I think a little bit nervous for the team because the downside exists for Andre Kuzmenko, Kuzmenko as well. So, I mean, he's volatile and his impact on the team is going to be like the, the volatility is going to be really important, right? You know what I mean? He, he's a he's a high leverage player, to use your words, uh, for this team because he they're going to be counting him for a ton of production from the winger position. Yeah, and if he goes nuclear, that's they're probably I mean, they kind of need it a little bit like they at least need him to maintain what he did last year, right? The, the, the logic of this team being a playoff team requires him to be, if not a star-level player, then right on the fringes of it. Yeah. So who who do you have next? Uh, uh, number two, and I think this is like almost by default, is goaltending. Oh, I, I would just put Thatcher Demko. Yeah. I mean, I, well, no, I'd put goaltending, too. I, I, I think know, it's fair I to have the other. and Martin are hugely, hugely well, volatile. Hugely volatile, but Demko, like, the thing about Demko is his, the, the volatility of Martin and Silovs gets magnified exponentially mm. if Demko doesn't play well, right? Like mm-hmm. if they need their backups to play 40 games, I'm really worried about this team, right? And, and by the way, it could still work out because Silovs is enormously talented as a young goalie. And we've seen and again, Spencer Martin crush, you know, the volatility of goalies too. means there's risk, but there's upside, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's inherent. It's not, we sometimes we talk about like the goalies or voodoo thing as if it can only go bad. You no, know no, what I mean? But, but it like, can go, it can really go well. well too. Aiden Hill. You never know. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Uh, Sergey Bobrovsky. So anyway, the, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I understand grouping goalies. I would just put Demko there as, as sort of the first place guy, particularly coming off of a season in which he, we saw everything. We saw him struggle. We saw him miss games and then we saw him dominate. You know, it's yeah. like, man, what 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 can we expect this year? I think he'll be good because I believe in Demko as a, a really good puck stopper. But can he be good for 60 games and still have stuff left in the tank to be good in the playoffs if the, if things break their way? And that's, I just think you look at the recent that's goal, what we don't know. The recent total goaltending performance from this team 
right? And under Boudreaux, what was it like? Best five on five save percentage mm-hmm. in the league, and then last year at the bottom almost. Or did they did they end up climbing out of the cellar in that category? But they were really low down in terms of five on five save percentage. Yeah, they they did year, climb right? out of the cellar. San Jose yeah. uh, passed them, but you know basically. A yeah, swing had, from one year to the next, from the ve- the very top to almost the very bottom, and yeah. that like that's volatility. That's yeah. exactly what we're talking. They about. They had some of the worst goaltending in the league. We so. have seen the spectrum for what it can look like. I three. Uh, well, I'll drop this as a teaser because we got to go to break. But okay. number three for me is JT Miller. We can I, get it. We can get into pick. that later. I've got Philip Ronick. Okay, yeah, that he would be on my list yep. as well. But JT Miller is it for me? Uh, you can text in. Your most volatile and least volatile Canucks going into the season 650, 650. Up next, we will talk to uh, Shana Goldman from The Athletic right here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, Tyler texts in about you demanding fantasy football updates on the drive to Penticton. If it is purely for fantasy football, why do you need blow-by-blow updates? You are confusing reality with fantasy. You aren't on the sidelines making decisions. I, I just want to know what's happening. Just wait. Just put it out of your mind. Relax. Zero percent. Relax. I know. I know you're incapable I'm gonna, of doing I'm, that. Yeah. Hundred. Do you know me at all? I, I do. <laughs> uh, all right. Now joining us from the Athletic, covering the NHL. Always a pleasure to have her on the show. She is Shayna Goldman. Shayna, thank you very much for doing this. As always, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How about you guys? Yeah, we're doing great. Uh, we are back. It's uh, it's exciting to be getting ready for hockey season. You know, training camp's getting going next week, prospect tournaments uh, this weekend. So it's a very, very fun time uh, of year. We were having a discussion in the first segment about volatile players on the Canucks, right? Like who, who are we most certain about what they're going to do? Who are we least certain about what they're going to do? And I, I wanted to kind of take that concept, apply it to the whole league a, a little bit, looking at, at the team level, who do you think is the most volatile team going into the season this year for you? The team that, you know, the range of outcomes is, is the widest. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. I want to say, I want to say like the Ottawa Senators or the Vancouver Canucks. Like those are the two I think that stand out for me. The difference between the two would be that I think the Senators right now have a little bit higher of a ceiling than the Canucks, but I also can see everything going wrong. Like we saw how broken they got last year and how things can come apart. And I don't think they have the best coaching staff to have the answer to fix it. But then on the flip side, you have the Canucks. The definition of chaos, right? You never know what's going to happen. You never know if things are going to go right, wrong, or sideways. And if things go wrong, do they have the answers to fix it? And really, what what is the answer to fix it? Like, they are in such a tough position. A team like the Senators, if they have to step back, they have all these assets, they have cap space, like, they can make it work. Or a team like the Canucks, that makes them a little bit more volatile in a sense because if something goes wrong, like, 
their hands are a little bit more tied. So looking at the Canucks specifically, I mean, like that's that's very interesting that you they would be that high up on your list. I mean, certainly we've seen the highs. Enough for you. We've seen the highs and the lows. I don't know. I always just think like <laughs> sometimes that we get so micro focused on it, but other people around the league wouldn't necessarily look at them that way. You know what I mean? Because I think you could yeah. also look at them and say, yeah, they're a perennial team that that misses the playoffs. Like what's volatile about that? But when you're looking at the Canucks, I mean, what are the who are the players that are kind of driving that volatility for you on the Canucks? You know what the thing is? I feel like if they are just like a very mid-team that makes the playoffs, like I feel like we're just going to get volatility everywhere because it's just going to be such a mess trying to fix it and all the news coming out. But um, for me, I feel like I look at their center depth and I'm still, you know, underwhelmed like I I really like the shooter acquisition I think he's great like ideally on a on a Stanley Cup caliber team he is your your third line center he is like your Yanni Gord of the Tampa Bay Lightning years for me so like I love that for them but I still get it and I know you have a second line and JT Miller at center isn't ideal you know which is why you should have known that sooner than later and you know, we don't know how the goaltending is going to be this year, right? Like, I think there's a lot of reasons to think that Demko's going to have a bounce back here. I personally do think he's going to, but if he doesn't, is everybody in front of the net good enough to, you know, stabilize the team? I don't think so. Even though I like their off season, I guess maybe I'm being extra harsh on them because they had this kind of like cool, common collected off season that we don't typically see from them. And it was really good, right? I like a lot of the, the Susie edition, the Suter edition, even, you know, someone like um, Ian Cole, who, you know, he's not my favorite defenseman out there, but, like, I get I get the vibe that they were going for. I just feel like things can fall apart so easily there. Shana, what – let's let's ask the contrary side to this. What, what team are you most confident in? What team do you feel has the narrowest range of outcomes going into this season? Like, they are who they are. We know who they're going to be. And you don't see the volatility there at all. Carolina Hurricanes. <laughs> uh, they, the system, Such a good answer. They, the perfect the, answer, yeah. And that's and you know what the thing is? I'm not necessarily saying, well, this is a team that's going to win it all. I think they're going to be excellent. I think that they're going to be just below the excellence they need to be once again. You know, the surprise for me would be if they overcome everything that, you know, what's held them back these last few years. Because you look at that, no team has an identity like the Hurricanes, right? Like, we could look at the Maple Leafs. We can look at the Colorado Avalanche, and they absolutely have an identity. No one has it like the Carolina Hurricanes. No one has a system that is so well-oiled that you could put anybody in it, and they'll thrive. You can have a defenseman at the caliber of Dougie Hamilton, and he's going to crush it. You can have someone at the you know, level of Tony D'Angelo, and he's going to manage a first-pair role. Like Nobody has this, and the additions they made were very good. Like Dimitri Roloff is going to kill it there. Even if they lose Brett Pesci, I think their defense is going to be just fine because they have a defense that I would say besides Slavin, anybody could step into and be in a position to succeed. And the same goes up front. You have Ajo, amazing, signed, already managed, perfect, love it. Healthy Svechnikov, who's complaining there. Nature says <laughs> he repeats his year. The bunting addition is good. But you just go, did you, did you do enough? Did you get that extra finishing talent that you needed? I think bunting is going to be great there, but I still look at it and go, I wish they had one more lethal scorer. Maybe Natchez becomes that. We saw him pull it together everywhere below the surface, except, you know, he's not a 50-goal scorer, which is the one thing that they're missing. But maybe Svechnikov gets there. Like, it feels like we know where they're going to end, and it's going to be very high in the standings and on a good playoff run. Can there be volatility? Yeah, can there be volatility if you never pass (laughs) East-West? No. 
Don't, no, you, don't you have to like carry the puck sometimes? <laughs> it's different from like the Oilers, who you expect to be good, but you know that the volatility can like mm. it could start bursting at the seams at any time in Edmonton. Like you look at that gold sending situation, you look at the defense. Everybody forgot how to play defense last year in the playoffs, except for Ekholm, essentially, and Bouchard. So it's there. There, there's that room for if they don't do this, it's going to be terrible. If they don't, like there are question marks always with the Oilers. They should be good, but we know that range of outcomes. The Canes, you know they're going to be good. It's just a matter of whether they can outperform the good that we expect them to be. Shana, we got rookie camps opening, obviously, in the Okanagan locally, but also Vegas, Buffalo, um, Traverse City, of course. So um, these things are proliferating, and they're they're a pretty big deal. Presumably, we're going to see Connor Bedard play a shift or two. <laughs> I don't know if they'll risk him in a full <laughs> game. Um but it, but it had me thinking, especially as I was going over rosters preparing to go up to Penticton this afternoon, um, you know, about, about the local kid, about the local kid about to take the league by storm. What are reasonable expectations? What are you expecting from Connor Bedard in his first NHL season? It's really tough because we've been so spoiled by some first overall picks, right? Mm. Like you look at the Austin Matthews of the world and Connor McDavid's and the way that they stepped into the league and just killed it. But we can't forget the Jack Hughes of the world or the Nico Heashers who didn't have these, like, incredible seasons off the bat. And, you know, I think the range of outcomes for Conor Bedard, like, you could walk into a bad team and just start thriving. Like, he has that superstar ability. But I don't think we can fault him if not. Jack Hughes is a superstar. No one should be denying that. And he had a bad first season. Like, the team around him was underwhelming. There was only so much he was going to be able to do individually. So it's super nice that they got him something like Taylor Hall. And the good question is going to be, you know, whether or not he's a top pair player, a top line player still at this point in his career. You know, there's good questions to ask there. Can Connor Bedard overcome that? It's just what we're all going to find out. Like, you literally don't know until you see him in game action with the team around him. And, you know, it's going to be a good test for the coaching staff because if the players there are falling behind so much, it starts to sink someone like Bedard. How do you adjust to avoid that? So you don't have to wait for year two like Jack Hughes did to have that second good season. Um, I think that he's going to have a good season. I think he's going to be more dangerous at even strength. I think that's where we're going to be noticing the game a lot more because I think in those minutes, they'll be able to like maximize his usage a lot more and he'll have a better supporting cast than he would say on power play one, which completely underwhelms me in Chicago. And usually with prospects, we look at it the other way, right? Like if you have power play success, how is that going to trickle into your even strength game? So I'm curious if it happens the reverse way. Like if he's not, just racking up, you know, empty calorie points on the power play because he has no support and starts making more of an impact at five on five. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the Taylor Hall acquisition for Chicago, and I, I really thought it was one of the more interesting challenges or interesting tasks we've seen for a general manager this summer for Chicago, where you have basically a ba- blank slate of a roster, so much cap space, and you're trying to start to construct an environment around Connor Bedard to facilitate his success. What did you make overall of, of how Chicago went about their business? and try to accomplish that task this offseason? I feel like they've set themselves at such a disadvantage on how they went about their rebuild in the first place. I, If I'm them, I want Brandon Hagel on my team right now. He was young enough to be there, and I think they'd have more up-and-coming talent with certainty instead of needing to go out and just get veterans to bring in the support. But I think... I think the addition of someone like Taylor Hall is a good one. We know Taylor Hall can be the guy, could be at points in his career, the guy. We also know he's someone with the experience of being the guy on a horrible team that 
you know, from an on-ice perspective and from a vibes perspective, I think it's going to be a good thing for Chicago. Um, you bring in people like Nick Foligno and Corey Perry. Like, how productive are they going to be on a fourth line? Maybe they'll be good defensively. They're, you know, they really don't thread the needle for me enough. But, you know, that's that's the locker room, you know, environment you're trying to improve and to, to build a mentality for the team, right? Like, all of that stuff is important. Do I think they could have done a little bit more to maintain their standing as a bottom five team while being a little bit more productive? Yes. And it all comes back to the net for me. I am so, I don't even want to, I don't think underwhelmed is the right word. I'm just so not interested to see what that cool tending <laughs> is going to do. And I think someone like Peter Morazic has had highs, but he's had so many more lows. And in recent years, the lows, the injuries, like for me, I think that you can have that high octane game that we're all excited to watch when, you know, you're scoring goals and you're allowing ton back, but I think it can get a little bit disheartening. So I think if they could have a little bit more stable goaltending and I'm not asking for much, just like an average goalie, I think it would do so much more for this Blackhawks team because I'm missing like the offensive pieces at the top of the lineup outside of Bedard and Hall. And I think Reichel could get there too. I just think that like it's a little bit imbalanced for me. So I, I think they could have been more aggressive in net or more aggressive up front. It's one or the other. Chicago Shana has 10 available contract slots and 12 million, 12.8 million, according to Cap Friendly at the moment, in available cap space. One thing that was interesting this summer is like, aside from Philadelphia and LA, Right. Aside from that trade that ultimately got Provorov to Columbus uh, as the Blue Jackets launched their uh, assault on all good vibes. Um, The the aside from that, like we didn't have any of those team pays to get rid of problem deals. Like it seemed like teams were willing to eat their issues for one more year rather than make a Bjorkstrand type deal Uh, again this summer. Almost felt like the Kraken expansion draft of the of the flat cap era. Um but I think Chicago still is going to have some opportunities to help people out, to, to get assets for their roster space and, and cap space over the balance. What would that look like in your mind in an ideal world? Like, what's the best strategic outcome for the Blackhawks in terms of leveraging their position between now and the trade deadline? Yeah, you're totally right on that. Like, it feels like everybody's okay waiting because they know the incoming cap growth is coming. So they're like, it's fine. We don't need to sell off players for nothing. Um, We've seen them do the trades, like the Tyler Johnson trade, right? And you get someone who is at the wrong point of his career, which is the unfortunate part, versus Pacioretty to Carolina for nothing. Like you were getting, you know, the injuries more of a freak thing than, you know, oh, this is some injury-riddled player. But like you were getting a productive player out of it. That The same is true for Bierstrand. So in an ideal world for them, they're benefiting from those trades and not just taking players for nothing to hit the cap floor or someone who they don't need the vibes anymore, right? We don't need the, this is going to help the locker room. At this point, you need to benefit from teams not having the space and you're getting someone good out of it. So it's going to be interesting if a team like, you know, Tampa Bay can manage that because they don't have much cap at all. Um, We'll see if maybe Toronto does that, if anything changes there or Colorado, like there are teams that are going to be up against it. Even a team like Vancouver, if Vancouver needed to move a winger, you know, to, to Chicago, they, they have the winger depth, the extra winger depth to do it. And it could even be something that you don't get the fair return that you wanted, but you get the cap space to work elsewhere. Like 
that could happen. So I think that's kind of like the ideal situation for Chicago. If they somehow got someone like Connor Garland to be on their second line, like that would be a really good thing for them. So I guess we'll see how it goes there. You know, there, there's definitely going to be teams who are going to be selling parts. I wonder what Florida does. I kind of think they'll wait till next summer to do that, but it wouldn't shock me if they're a team that does when you have like the Lundell contract coming up and Montour, like how do you handle Reinhardt and Bennett and players like that? So I guess those are the teams to watch to see if they need to move out of, you know, a player just to make cap space and how Chicago can take good players out of it instead of just taking players to be bodies that exist in their lineup. Or goalies, if Florida wants to get involved. (laughs) They definitely could move a goalie. I mean, there are, we really, I feel like we didn't see enough goalie movement this year compared to, you know, the summer before. Maybe we got too much that it, you know, had too much of a ripple effect there, but like, I would be so curious, like how it works out for a team like Florida that just has so much money in their net, or even if a team like the Kings go, mm. we need to upgrade. So someone that's currently there could move on to Chicago or I'm looking at Chicago and I'm looking at Buffalo as the two teams that I'm like, are you going to do something in that? Like, are we, are we settled here or is there more to come? Well, yeah. So we, we were talking about this yesterday, but I, I was talking about the first thing I do when I, when I, sort of hit September on the calendar is I parse the NHL transaction page and I ignore like team fit builds line combos and simply ask myself this question who added an actual top of the lineup caliber piece right like who actually did that because I always think that that means more in terms of altering a team's overall ceiling or their overall fate and I sort of think it's LA and I think it's Pittsburgh and I, I don't really see another team um, you know, all apologies to the likes of JT Comfort, where, where you'd say that's true. And then I look at the Kings and Net, and it's just like, man, they are really going with the Vegas model here. How much risk do you think they've taken on with this Talbot, Copley, Riddick, uh, Eric Portillo sort of group? The Vegas strategy is such an interesting one to me because in order to pull it off, you have to be built like Vegas, which isn't an easy task. You know, I think... Everybody can take lessons from Stanley Cup winners, but they have to figure out how they can exactly apply them to them if they can at all. And this one is one of those things like not everyone can swing that. A team like the Devils that's so well built and has such a puck possession game can afford that. A team like the Kings is interesting because they've been a good defensive team the last couple of years. And Gavikov killed it there. Perfect fit, you know, way better than many expected. And I guess I could give you some confidence that if you can keep that defense being as stable as you are, you just need to now work on the two other elements. And they chose offense, which absolutely could use, right? This is a team that's, you know, doing well in the offensive categories, but they can't finish their chances for two straight years. They're one of the worst teams at converting. So if you get someone like Dubois and then you can slot everybody else more appropriately because you add a player of his caliber to the top, it's a good thing, you know, like, and then you look at the last couple of years, you know, well, it's not just Dubois, it's Dubois and Fiala. Like that's great, right? Like that is a very good, forward group and a very good defense. But is it good enough for this goalie tandem? Like, I think that Copley is just a very neutral goalie, and that's fine. I think that he is completely, totally fine in this role. Someone like Cam Talbot does worry me a bit more. Talbot had the higher highs than Copley ever did. Um, So he has that working to his advantage. But if you look at the end, I don't even want to look at last year, right? I want to go to a defensively strong team like Minnesota and look at his game there. And you could see it start coming apart. You know, they were, they were, he had a couple trends during the year where he stood out as a better goalie, but there were so many parts of the year too that 
you know, his play was starting to decline, which is why Flurry got more starts and Flurry was rightfully, you know, the starter at different points, including the playoffs. Like, so we know what Cam Talbot can be in front of a good defense at this phase in his career. And it doesn't encourage me that much. So that sparks a little bit more concern than Copley. If we looked at this team right now and said, but it's okay. They have a little bit of space. They can make it work. I just don't see it. And I also see the fact that they have, you know, gotten rid of some of their draft picks too this year. So it's not like they have that at their advantage for something big and splashy. Like it'll take probably moving a pick to clear out another contract plus whatever it would take to acquire someone. So maybe they can go for that mid-tier range goalie. They don't need that high, high, high end one with the way that they're built, especially if the offense clicks the way that they're expecting it to. But I, I have a little bit more concern with Talbot right now, but you know, I could be wrong. Goaltending is such a hard, you know, position to predict. And for all we know, he'll have the right resurgence under with this coaching staff under a good defensive team. Shana, thank you as always. Always fun to have you on the show. Uh, I'm sure we'll chat again sh- soon. Thanks for having me. That is Shana Goldman covering the NHL for the Athletic, and of course, also as uh, part of the Too Many Men podcast. Uh, and uh, as I said, one of our favorites. Always good to get her on the show. LA is going to be a fascinating team uh, to watch this year. I do think people, there's an element of people sleeping a little bit on how good Pierre Luc Dubois is and what kind of impact he could have on that team. And, you know, a lot of people that I've seen talking about uh, the Pacific division, you kind of, if you're doing your favorite exercise and putting it in tiers, a lot of people kind of go Edmonton, Vegas, one, two in some order. And then LA in a, in maybe a tier by itself as the third team. I don't know that it would shock me if LA even started to bump up into that top tier oh. with, with uh, Vegas and Edmonton. Like, well, I think there's a lot of potential and what well, Shana mentioned so there, the, like this the, is the year for them to really go for it. I think. What's the case? This is rhetorical, but I, I do actually want you to like play along with me. Like, yes. What's the case against? <laughs> what's the case against the Oilers bumping into that tier? Uh, the case against the Oilers. Oh, sorry. Against, the case against oh, the Kings. Oh, the case against the Kings. Spoiling that party. I mean, goaltending is part of it. But because you're so confident in Aiden Hill and Stuart Skinner. Yeah. No. You know, exactly. I mean, I just that's why that's why like anytime I say, hey, look, I think the Kings are the team. To watch out west, people sort of get mad at me about their goaltending. And I'm like, as opposed to all the teams in the west with great goaltending? like Yeah, like the contending teams. Like Philip Gustafson in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. who was great last year. But like, you know, like other than Soros, Hellebuck, and then Demko sort of a tier beneath that. Right? Like, is there another team that you'd say has goaltending as a strength? And all of those teams are the fringe playoff teams. No, and there are teams like, like, would it shock me if Calgary had really good goaltending this year? No. Absolutely not. It wouldn't. But I don't think you go in chalking it up as a strength, right? I you know do. what I mean? I actually do. Okay, fair enough. But but I'm I'm higher on Jacob Markstrom than Market, and I believe in Dustin Wolf. So, you know, my, my view is, like, even if Markstrom doesn't bounce back, at, and at the age he is, I understand why you'd have a fade. I think that's wild, but... I'd at least understand it. Um, even if that's true, they have the best prospect outside the best yeah. goalie prospect outside the NHL. Like, I think they're going to be fine. Uh, just before we go to break here, by the way, a little uh, Canucks adjacent news reported by our very own Satyar Shah uh, of Canucks Central here on Sportsnet 650. And this was like 
a controversy or not a controversy, but just a report or, that barely even developed. <laughs> I barely had time to be aware of it until Sat has reported the other way. But uh, Sat reporting that John Shorthouse is indeed coming back on the Canucks TV broadcast. In Sat's words, he has signed a new deal. And I know Rick Dollywell earlier today had uh, had reported that maybe there was some uncertainty on that topic. But Sat laying everybody's fears to rest that uh, Shorty will indeed be back on the Canucks TV broadcast this year. And we'll, we'll wait and see who's going to be uh, who's going to be in the booth alongside him this year. What suspense? <laughs> hey, until it's official, there is suspense. Uh, all right. We will take a break. I uh, got an open segment coming up next. I want to get back in on the the volatility conversation and specifically as it relates to JT Miller, uh, plus an update on a Canucks prospect playing overseas right now. Lots more Canucks talk coming up here on Sportsnet 650. Hitting the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Vic Nazar. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the work site. Find them, to, find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line volatility has been the the word of the day adding a new word to the canucks talk lexicon and we started off the show talking about our uh, canucks volatility rankings who we are the the most certain about what we're going to get and who we are the least certain about what we're going to get and on that most volatile list we both had kuzmenko at number one we talked about him goaltending demko however you want to phrase it at number two for me in terms of most volatility the number three thing on that list is JT Miller. And again, much like with goaltending, where, as I said, you know, we've seen the highs and the lows in a big, big way over the last couple of seasons. I think the same thing applies to JT Miller, right? We have seen the absolute peak of his abilities and what he can do and how he can impact the team. And we've seen stretches where it's been pretty frustrating to watch and where he hasn't been making that sort of impact. And, you know, Alan Calgary texted in earlier. Are we certain Miller is a two C maybe he's a winger uh, or he's best as a winger. He says, I don't think three goals at five on five since the coaching change should be considered a two C. What do you guys think of this? And I mean, I think that's part of the volatility conversation, right? I think we would pro I'm guessing you and I would probably have a lot more certainty be certainty about what to expect from JT Miller if he thought we thought he was going to be the team's first line left winger, right? Playing with Elias Patterson in that role as opposed to the second line center. I, I think that is an inextricable part of the conversation around what we are likely to see, what we can expect to see from JT Miller this this season. It's a really tough one because he's 30, right? And at the end of the day, like, he still should be a good player, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. in his skill set that will age well. In particular, um, you know, his 
straight up orchestral conduction skills on the power play, right? Like <laughs> sweating at the end, like bowing to the crowd. <laughs> I mean, the the guy has the guy has the power play on the str- on a string. He's one of the smartest five on four players I've ever seen play consistently, and I include in that guys like you know Hubert Obarkov, guys like the Twins. Frankly, honestly, I'm not kidding. Like JT Miller's that good at pulling the strings on the power play, at figuring out how to make the power play so efficient. Like one thing I love about the power play is if you go check out JT Miller's heat maps, okay? So like the shots that the Canucks take Mm -hmm. when JT Miller's on the ice, it's like almost equal (laughs) sort of across the board, but like perfectly calibrated to be efficient. Like the bumper gets the most shots, right? The flanks get the second most shots. It's just everything is down low. It's perfect. It's perfect. That part of his game is going to stay. Like that yep. part, JT Miller five on four, I think is a really good bet to be high end for three four years. The problem is, is at eight million, you can't just have a power play specialist, right? You need a guy to be. And this is where, like, I don't know. You know, you had him third in your volatility ranking, mm-hmm. and I think that makes a lot of sense because one thing we've seen from JT Miller is his first Canucks season, he comes and he plays on that Lotto line, and people will maybe not remember this because his point totals weren't gaudy the way they have been the last two years. But like JT Miller was like a top 20 NHL forward that season. Like he was, oh, he was elite, elite, fantastic, in- insanely good. His two way impact was massive. Um, he was just so, so, so good that year. And the 2010 uh, or the lockout shortened season, 2021, he was like the Canucks fourth best forward. And that's with like Pedersen hurt. Like, Brock Besser was easily their best forward. He played at center a bit. He played on the wing. Didn't really get going. Like, the point totals weren't great. Um, there there just wasn't, you know, he was like a good second-line forward that year. The next year was the 100 or the 99-point 99 99 season, season anyway, where yep. he was, you know, again, one of the top 20 forwards in the league. And then last season, we saw, like, that level of vacillation all play out, but in in fast motion, like, he had the first 50 games where he was like Pedersen the year before. It was like he wasn't just ineffective five on five. Like it was like borderline unplayable. Like the team never had the puck when he was on the ice. It, there was nothing happening for him offensively for like 50 games at five on five. And then Rick Tockett takes over and his two way game really finds its form. And yet in Tockett's 32 games, he still only scored three five on five goals. So, you know, I, I don't know that I'm. I, like I think I think it's fair to say that he was sensational based on his two way play after Tockett took over. Like, but but it wasn't it still wasn't enough, right? Like, at no point last season was Miller at the level where he'd be worth an eight million dollar cap hit. At no point. Yeah, the five on five production wasn't there even late the, in the, the season. The five on five production wasn't there, and if you look at on the whole, like only three, only two forwards in the league were on the ice for more goals against. You know, like. There just wasn't enough happening. So, yeah, Miller's enormously volatile because we've literally seen it season over season. Like, we've seen him be one of the best forwards in hockey in Vancouver, and we've seen him be, you know, a second-line player. And then last season, we saw him be actually like a third-line caliber player for 50 games, and then we saw him be a star for 32. So what are we going to get this year now that he's in his age 30 season? I, I, I can't tell you. And again, it's the except it's, that I think he'll be really good on the power. He'll play. be really good on the power play, but the the where the volatility comes in is how he handles the center role, how he handles the two C responsibilities, and what his five on five impact is 
on a game in game out basis and whether specifically not just his two-way play right but specifically the offensive production can rebound at five on five and you know again this is a situation where he's not just volatile from an individual perspective right like his he is such an important piece for this team we were just talking to Shayna, and one of the things she brought up as a concern with her with this canucks team is the center depth right and yeah pew Suter helps a lot bringing him him in to presumably be the three c and you get teddy bluger as a veteran experienced fourth line center but if Miller and really Patterson and Miller, but let's focus it on Miller. If he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, that creates a domino effect where you how you all, you all of a sudden have a real talent deficit at center potentially, right? If he doesn't live up to what he's capable of. So it's not just that he's volatile in terms of what his individual season will look like, but wherever it lands is going to have a huge impact on how this team lines up. Like they're going to rely on, so much on both Elias Patterson and JT Miller. I would bet that they both end up seeing a pretty significant share of tough minutes, right? Like JT Miller, they're not going to be able to shelter JT Miller. He's it's, going to it, have to. It's going to be hold Miller. Up. It's going to be Miller who gets the first look, though. You like, um, I don't know if you remember this availability, but there was an availability. In a, it was pre-draft, like like it was pre-draft the week before Canucks hockey operations decamped to Nashville. Patrick Alvine did an availability. And mentioned, or he was asked directly, what have you seen in this playoffs, right? How do you view, for example, the Canucks matching up with the, the recent Stanley Cup champions? <laughs> and he came back to, like, we have this big center who can handle tough minutes that I think can play that style of game in JT Miller. That was like his, how do you match up with Vegas? Number one reason we have a big two-way center. That tells you everything you need to know in terms of how the Canucks think they're built. Like, it's gonna be it's gonna be JT. He's got the faceoff winning. He's got the size. He's gonna get the first look in toughs. Should he? I think there's a real chance he's their third best tough minute center. I think there's a real chance he's their fourth best defensive center. And that's not a knock on him. Him even it's just that like, Pia Suter's a really good two way piece. Mm-hmm. Teddy Bluger's a defensive specialist, like a really good defensive specialist. Patterson for me might be one of the like. Patterson finished seventh in Selkie vote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this isn't but I don't I don't really think defense at the center ice position is a strength of Miller's game. I, I haven't seen it anyway. I've seen far too many plays um in, in which the commitment isn't there, right? I think puck management is not a strength of his game at center. I don't think this is unfair, by the way. And I think there's been too many times where, you know, we come out of games and the Canucks have just been wildly outshot with him on the ice at center. You know, it, He's an elite defensive winger. He's a he I don't I don't think he's like a bad defensive player overall. But I don't think he should be this team's first choice, maybe not even their second choice, tough minutes option at, at the center ice. Position. And I just don't think there's any like there's no way where okay, let's say he starts out as the first choice matchup guy. I could easily see a scenario where that ends up going more to Elias Pettersson because he is such a good defensive player, right? Like I I can easily see Elias Pettersson taking over that role, but you're never JT Miller's never going to be in a situation with the way this team is built where he's avoiding tough minutes, right? No. Like they're going to be a part well, of his game and a part of his role and it's no not, matter what. It's not like you slip a playmaker like JT Miller under the radar against an NHL coach. They're not no, going to yeah, be like you're not, like, not going to shelter him. No, they're not going to well th- other teams won't allow it. Exactly. Other teams aren't going to be like, "Oh yeah, no, please, JT Miller play shifts against our bottom six and third pair defense." <laughs> please, you know, cut the cut the guys who were in the AHL last week in, in, into shreds, please. 
That's just not going to happen. Yeah. So that's going to have to be a part of his game, whether he's the, you know, the de facto first matchup guy, whether he's a second matchup guy, whatever it is, holding his own at center against other teams, best players. It's, it's going to be something that he's asked to do. And it's going to be a, a huge part of how far this Canucks team can go, how he rises to that challenge or not. Um, I know you mentioned, uh, Philip Ronick would have been another guy on your volatility rankings, potentially, you know, in the in the mix with JT Miller for one of those spots. Ronick um, is an interesting one. I mean, it's tough to judge because we haven't seen it here in Vancouver, right? But I know last year, if you look at the underlying numbers, it was a big step up for him in Detroit in terms of his defensive uh, his defensive results. Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing. I mean, like underlying data right rapm some of the stuff at evolving hockey um dom's model because i've got to get a mention of that in there some of those all-in-one metrics which you know i like and i use Mm -hmm. but in context will tell you almost across the board very high that philip peronic was like one of the 10 best defensemen in hockey and they'll also tell you across the board that he's never previously been at that level well if the canucks have one of the 10 best defensemen in hockey and Quinn Hughes, then the blue line concerns are over and yes. the good times are here. Yes. But I don't know that they are. Like, I don't know that a guy who's never hit a level then then hit it for 50 games is going to be able to sustain that level going forward, especially given that the jump in his effectiveness is tied to some pretty favorable percentages and some really good performance in the underlying numbers betrayed by really porous goaltending behind him, right? It's not like the reason Philip Peronick shines here either is that Detroit was massively outscoring their opponents. It's that they were massively out shooting and out attempting their opponents. And sometimes that's a product of trailing. Mm. Like there's, there's all sorts of difficulties I have interpreting his underlying performance last season as just being indicative of a new level he's hit. And yet he would hardly be the first 25 year old defenseman to hit a new level defensively and then sustain it sustain it for into their late 20s so i'm open to the possibility that the canucks have got a star level defender but i'm not prepared to conclude that they're likely to have because he played it like that you know because he's played like that for 50 games of his 400 game nhl career like i need to see more i need to see him sustain that i need to see him do it again at least before i'm ready to say that no you know, I think he's a really good player. Mm-hmm. I, the the comp that I keep on bringing up is Brandon Montour. Like, I wonder, I think him working out for the Canucks looks like Brandon Montour did for the Florida Panthers in the playoffs last year, except that it's far less marauding. Right? Well, yeah, like he's it's not so much carrying the puck, but in terms of impact. Yeah, yeah. but but it's moving the puck, right? I mean, yes. I mean, I, I swear that Philip Ronick has never watched one of his passes ever. Like, it, it, they're all blind. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I literally think he's yelling showtime after well I don't, I don't think he's loud enough to do that but he might as well be yelling showtime after every pass because he, he's not looking at where he's sending the pass it's uncanny it's super fun to watch like yeah. i'm looking forward to a full season of no look <laughs> exit passes from philip Villabronic. they're unbelievable but i'm not convinced yet that he's the player that he looked like in 50 games in detroit i need to see him do it again at least and then hopefully sustain it but man if he is if he's a, if he's that level of performer, he could be a game changer for a team that so sorely needs it. Which so hey, we've we've identified really like three individual players in key roles as you know 
top volatility. And I'll leave the goaltending out of this for a second, but Kuzmenko, Miller, Hronik. Which one hitting close to the upside Sorry, Kuzmenko, Kuzmenko, Miller, Hronik. I, well, I think Miller's the most important. Okay, so that's the if you choose, well, if you could choose one, well, if you were like a Canucks fan choosing one to hit, let's go close to their upside. Why is Miller? Why well, is Miller the most important? Play center. That there, there is a premium positional element to it, but that's not the main reason. Why? Because it's the biggest liability. Mm. If Hronik doesn't hit for the Canucks, like if he's just a second pair, a good second pair guy. Well, he expires. So you're saying because the downside is yeah. less bad in Hronik's case. He expires. You know, like you're probably able to sign him to a raise. He's still a helpful player. If he's not, or if you want to change direction, he'll still have value. You haven't committed a regrettable cap hit to him, and he's young. I'm thinking this season, though. No, I know, but but I'm just saying, like, whether it's this season or not, like, if things go badly for Kuzmenko, there's one more year left on the deal, he's still 28, whatever, mm-hmm. right? He'll, he'll probably still have value six months on, you know, so long as he bounces back a little bit. Maybe not huge value, but... You know, you're not you're not hooped. If Miller's like a 70 point guy who loses a step this year. Like everything else can hit. And you're never winning a cup. I just think for this year, like we've seen what the Canucks look like with multiple really good centers playing well at the same time. And they still miss the playoffs. Right. We haven't seen what this iteration three of them. (laughs) Exactly. We haven't seen what this iteration of the Canucks looks like with another star level defenseman behind Quinn Hughes. And so for that potential upside, I'm not saying he's going to hit it, but if we're just saying who hitting on their upside has the biggest impact of this season, like what the, the, the upside case you're laying out for Philip Ronick, I just don't, we, we have no concept of what this team would even look like. If that happens, it's so hard to imagine compared to what we've seen. I think it could really legitimately transform the way this team plays. If you have that kind of defenseman playing behind Quinn Hughes in a way that, yeah, okay, it's great to have a star-level second center, no doubt about it, but I'm not sure it transforms the nature of the team in the same way that Hronik hitting could potentially could, right? Yeah. So I think I would go for Hronik. I, I, I think that's fair. I just think you can't divorce the micro from the macro to yeah. that extent. You know, like, especially this season. I, I mean, we had, a, we had a fun text in that was, um, that I just want to quickly... Was it the one about Canucks fans? <laughs> No, I like that one. Because somebody pointed out Canucks fans should be on the volatility. No, this was an unsigned one that, that from our first segment where someone said, in light of Pedersen wanting the tw- Canucks to win now, can Drance finally admit that the Canucks chose not to tank last year, even though Drance kept saying the Canucks should? Come on, it, it's not rocket science. Essentially saying, like, the Pedersen situation mm-hmm. and the fact that he remains unsigned is proof that the Canucks were right to continue pushing chips into the middle as opposed to trying to juke their draft stock and, and on and on and on. And, I mean, it's one of those, like, classic counterfactuals where it's like, well, sorry, if the Canucks were doing all this stuff to appeal to Pedersen and it didn't work, how does that vindicate their strategy? Yeah, it'd like, be one the whole point, signed. The whole point, yeah. If he'd signed and been like, the win-now moves were very, inc- very important for me in making this decision, that would be one thing. But, you know... If you push all your chips into the table and still don't win the hand, I don't know how that vindicates your strategy. Doesn't make Um, sense. (laughs) It's such a ridiculous argument. Just thinking about our blackjack conversation in the break. (laughs) Sometimes you got to play with your gut. Blackjack's Uh, (laughs) not played on paper. Sometimes you just got to go with your gut. (laughs) Things casinos love to hear. Uh, okay, I did want to get this in. Uh, hello, I'm Thomas Drance. Yes, things, things Casino, casino loves, loves to hear. Love yeah. to hear. Um, 
I did want to get this in, uh, mention this uh, again, tying everything into the theme of volatility. Uh, I, I like this one too. Would you be okay with Miller at 60 points if he becomes a shutdown option? Uh, yeah. Yes. If, if we leave the season and Miller's like eaten toughs, won 55 plus percent of draws, right? Has like a 58% share of shot attempts and goals scored when he's on the ice. And but it's low event. But it's low event, but still he but at a comes, ratio, out, yeah. comes out with 45 on five points and 20 on the power play, and the power play is still top 15 running through him. I think you look at that as a smashing success, especially if it, especially if the team's success follows. Right? This is the other thing that I think people are underrating. Like People are like, well, can Kuzmenko hit 40 again? Can Pedersen hit 100 again? And it's like, I, I, if this team plays the right way, mm. I don't think you're going to have as high scoring a team. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like, this team shouldn't play as loose as they did. This team shouldn't be trailing and need to chase games as much as they did. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention this. And again, I'll tie it into to volatility. Because uh, speaking of volatility, what a couple of years it has been for Jonathan LeCaramacchi, Canucks first-round draft pick in 2022, who, of course, had just a nightmare season in his draft plus one year. Injuries out of the lineup. It was really, really tough. Got going in the playoffs last year, had a strong preseason performance in the SHL, and then today scores his first goal of the season in game one on the power play in the SHL. So still early days, right? I don't know how much you want to be taking away from preseason SHL action, but when you couple it with the playoff performance last year, any signs that he is getting back on the right track? Because I think it's rare to see a prospect who has had his development disrupted in such a significant way, right? From from looking like a really, really solid pick in the middle of the first round to a disaster of the year last year. And you would love to see him from a Canucks perspective, but also just from a human perspective for him, get back to being the kind of player he was when the Canucks drafted him. The LeCaramacchi story is a fascinating one because, as you know, Although hockey isn't played on paper, I often analyze it off paper. Uh Um, So, you know, I I have this method of evaluating prospects where I look at their size, the league they're playing in, and their age, and I compare it to what other players who've scored similarly and are a similar stature and ideally also have, like, similar draft pedigree because that's an important data point. What did the industry actually Mm -hmm. think of the guy? Um, How they've performed. Now, LeCaramacchi in his draft year fell to 15, and it was a surprise that he was available, and I loved the pick for the Canucks at the time, and even when he struggled last season, I kept saying it was the right pick for the Canucks at the time, and the reason is, is that there was only like five or six guys who'd ever produced similarly uh, at the SHL level in his age, and the only one of those guys who was like a pedigree guy taken in the first round was William Nylander. Well, to me, regardless of anything else about the player, that's great value to get at 15th overall. Like, that's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So I loved the pick when they made it. And the skill is evident when I've been able to see him play, when I've been able to watch him play in Europe. Now, he had mono last year. He had a significant ankle injury. He had a concussion. (laughs) Everything went badly for him. Oh, yeah. Struggled at the World Juniors twice, both in August and then again in Halifax in the winter. Um, and And he struggled even though he moved down the league. And all of a sudden... It goes from being like, LeCaramacchi is a rare profile, and almost everyone who's played like this at this level, at this age, has gone on to be an impactful player, to 
no player has ever produced like this as a 19-year-old in the Osvenskin and gone on to be an NHL scoring winger of any importance. And in fact, the only guy who's ever scored like this and had a similar stature who's gone on to have a meaningful NHL career is Mikhail Backlund, who's like a two-way a center, yes. which is not a favorable comp for LeCaramacchi. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, how can I keep this guy high up on our prospect rankings when he's now going to be trying to defy history? Maybe he was historically unlucky. Maybe that season is going to end up being a historical outlier. And going forward, when people are like, well, LeCaramacchi scored at a similar age in the Allsvenskin, so this seventh-round guy has a shot, it's going to be like, yeah, but he had mono, but, yes. broke his foot, <laughs> and had and had concussion issues during the season. Yeah, he had the worst season. Like, I don't even mean on the ice, just worst outside like, season possible. Unbelievable struggles. Yeah. So. He's anyway beginning to build a case where that's more conceivable. I still think there's things that he's going to need to do a little bit better. Like what I like about LeCaramacchi when I watch him play, other than the shot Mm -hmm. and the fact that he shoots it with zero conscience, like he's going to be a high volume shooter. This Mm -hmm. is not a Kuzmenko profile. This guy's (laughs) going to shoot a lot uh, whenever he gets to the NHL, whenever he gets to the AHL. He, He shoots from everywhere. Uh, which is good and bad, right? There it's not it's not all good, but I tend to like it from a guy who's got a good shot. What I like about him is he's, it looks like the puck follows him around, but of course that's a mirage. He's not a magician. He's not, he doesn't have puck magnets in his pocket. He's just in the right place. Like he's just got a certain awareness and anticipation that makes it look like magic in in terms of how involved he is with the play. He's also got, I think, some dynamic ability to attack off the rush and carry the puck through the neutral zone. I still think his ability to be like a multi-dimensional offensive threat's a little limited. I don't see the playmaking upside that the Canucks were touting uh, when they picked him 15th overall. And I do think he's going to need to figure out how to get inside mm-hmm. an awful lot more on a North American ice sheet. Uh, so there's, you know, there's things that he's going to have to work on. But if he can bounce back to even just be like on track, you know, I'm not talking about like delivering on the... On track to be a player. On, on track to be like even like a Sam Gagne. Well, that's what I mean. A, an type. NHL player. Sam Gagne played a thousand games. Yeah, right. Like a player in the NHL, not 100%. a star, but just an NHL, a bona fide NHL uh, player, a middle six guy with with power play utility. If he looks like that at the end of the season, if if there's some meaningful historical comps to what he's done, that'd be great. If he lights it up, that's what the Canucks really need. And to your point about the development he needs to do, it's going to be so much easier to do that development if you're already playing well and what your current strengths are. You know what I mean? If you have that confidence that, hey, I'm I'm filling the net because I'm a great shooter. Okay, now let's go work on adding those other elements of my game. I think that's really difficult to do, obviously, when everything is going wrong off the ice and in terms of injuries for you. So great to see uh, from Jonathan Karamaki getting on the board in his first game uh, in the SHL, scoring on the power play, and you hope he's able to continue the form he showed in the playoffs and the preseason throughout this year in Sweden. Us uh, Speaking of prospects, he's going to be on the Canucks Young Stars team in Penticton. Not Jonathan LeCaramacchi, but our next guest, Jacob Maillet. He's an invitee onto the roster. Uh, We will talk to him next here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Place it over to Curry. Curry. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 
is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, we don't get a chance to play a lot of OHL play-by-play audio on the show, but you just heard uh, our next guest who's going to join us in a few minutes, Jacob Mayette, scoring a goal there for the Windsor Spitfires. Something he did 24 times for them last year, added 52 assists as well. And of course, uh, Mayette, not a Canucks draft pick, but uh, he is part of the Young Stars team in Penticton, uh, one of a handful of uh, invites from the OHL. So I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk with him momentarily here. Of course, the uh, the Young Stars tournament gets going tomorrow in Penticton. You'll be able to hear all of the games right here on Sportsnet 650, courtesy of our own Brendan Batchelor doing play-by-play. And uh, I noticed on Twitter that Batch is in Penticton. The Canucks prospects skated there today. Got from Batch. No lines, unfortunately. I'm a little disappointed in Batch uh, for that, but uh, that'll have to wait until tomorrow to get the, the first line combinations of the season. Yeah, gotta wait for, for me Brent to get Batch up there. there. <laughs> gotta wait for a true sicko to get on the ground in Penticton for for somebody to tweet line combos from the, the warm-up skate for the Young Stars tournament. Uh, 650-650, as I mentioned, is the Dunbar Lumber text line, uh, and uh, we were throughout the course of the show and some people texting in uh, Kevin from Calgary says what about Pod Colson who knows what we have with that guy I agree with that part of the sentiment that long term we don't really know what Vasily Pod Colson is going to be what he's going to end up being in the NHL I don't know about if I see him as a particularly volatile player for this year because it's hard for me to imagine side breakout season for Vasily Podkolzin. You know what I mean? Like I yeah, I, but it, I don't I would say he doesn't need it. Like a 40 point season from Vasily Podkolzin would definitely constitute a big offensive breakout, right? Absolutely it would. So, but you could see that. Yeah. Well, if he if he's doing that, you know it's going to be mostly at even strength. Okay, 35. Yeah. Let's say 35. 40 I'll points is it. a lot. Oh, it is a lot. I'll, I'll lower it. Let's go 30. Let's go 30. Sure. What cuz what's that probably going to look 14, 15 goals, mm-hmm. almost all of them, maybe spare one at five on five. That means he's playing top nine every night. Might even mean he's playing top six every night. That's that's a huge deal. That means he's like an everyday top nine heavy press for this team. Um, and if he's earning that type of role, the physicality that he's probably bringing on a night to night basis and, and the impact of his motor, uh, of his size on the game, like that's a that's a meaningful player. Almost sure. For sure. I just, I don't know. I, I think it doesn't compare in terms of volatility and the range of outcomes. Like, of course, every player has a little bit of uncertainty, right? Like every player, even, you know, we, we were talking about Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, how confident we are in them, but we've seen down stretches in Elias Pettersson's career, right? Like it, it does happen. Every player has an uncertainty. I just think I have a lot better idea of what to expect from Vasily, Vasily Podkolzin than Had seven last year. <laughs> he had twenty six in his uh, in his rookie for season. sure. So you're hoping for him to get back to that level. Anything above that, though, I think would be a 
a pretty significant surprise. I mean, I don't know point. to run it pl- to run in place over your three years, given what we saw at the end of his rookie season. Well, I'm not saying that would be great. That's tough. I'm not saying that would be great, but it's just not vol- volatile, right? If that's where my expectations are. Well, sure, but the the volatility would be him beating that, and I I think there's some ability to do so. But also, I think if we're talking about a guy who, or you are not far away from just a guy territory. It's a big season for Vasily Puck. No don't get don't get me wrong. You would love to see that breakout, like where he is a forty point, you know, middle legit, not just middle six because oh, we're using him there because he can kind of do it, but like middle six helps you on a good NHL team. If he, if he's that this year, that's fantastic, and you want to see him take that step forward. I just think the dynamics of how the team is constructed, his season last year, all of that puts him in a fairly difficult position to get that done, right? Like you look at the competition for minutes and the whole thing, it's, uh, you want to see it, but I'm not necessarily banking on it happening this year. There's a lot of competition on the wings too, right? I mean, exactly. especially if Pearson's back and, and complicating matters and then Mikheyev's status and Beauvillier, Di Giuseppe is clearly a coach's favorite. I mean, there's a lot going on for this Canucks team on the wings. It, it's not an easy pull for Hoaglander or Pod Colson, and yet the Canucks need one of them them to not not like break out in terms like 70 points or something outrageous but just like break out in terms of being a helpful top nine guy one of those guys absolutely must hit if this team's going to be anywhere close to achieving their goals uh by the way jacob mayette's still on the ice in penticton so when he gets off he's going to give us a call hopefully any minute now and hopefully before the end of the show uh kira that would be very nice kira the water guy says can we all stop expecting the young players to step in and get 50 points right away. Whatever happened to starting on the fourth line and gradually moving up. Kessler was a third and fourth line player uh, for many years. Do you know what happened to it? It didn't happen last year. No, no. But do you want to know what happened? What? The salary cap. Like today. Well, what one thing that happened is that young players have started coming in and demanding bigger roles right away. And teams are more likely to give them to them. I don't mean demanding in terms of like whining about it. I mean, with their skill and their ability, demanding bigger roles and teams are more likely to do it because of the salary. Yeah, I mean, teams can't afford to have, you know, the the, Ryan Kessler caliber prospect spend, you know, a, a variety of seasons playing behind Andrew Castles. You know what I mean? You're just like, well, we have Ryan Kessler. We're going to have to move Castles on. You do that two years earlier, right? Like, it's just a different world. Um, And by the way, I think for the most part, that's beneficial to the players. You know, like, I'm convinced that the Sedin twins, if you go look at the rates at which they were scoring five on five, right? And, And where their ice time was at, where they were like, they were not even like third liners, like highly used third liners. They were like real bottom six guys in those years under Mark Crawford. And when we look back on it, it's like, Henrik would be like a hundredth in NHL scoring. We were all talking about them like they were disappointments. And it's like, what if they just weren't getting the ice time? Mm. You know, like, I don't know that. I don't know that. Certainly they wouldn't feel like they were underserved, you know, like they are poorly served by the way that they came along slowly and had to fight for their ice time and earn it. But I think in retrospect, it's very easy to look at their careers and be like, hey, the Canucks probably were wasting time not using them more heavily, both at even strength and on the power play in those Mark Crawford years. Like the Canucks probably would have been better off with the twins playing more minutes on a, on a regular basis than, you know, some of the, some of the second lines that they trotted out uh, in those seasons. So, you know, I have no problem with playing younger guys. I, I, you have to earn it anyway, because you have to win. It's a competitive environment. Like you're the best players, the cream will rise to the top, but 
carving out a predictable role for young players, and certainly if they're if they warrant it, not holding them back artificially for developmental reasons. I don't think that's a negative, and I don't think anyone's expecting you know fifty points or anything like that for Vasily Podkolzin. But you know, to the texter's point about what happened to starting on the fourth line and then moving up, I mean. With Pod Colson specifically, like last year would have been a great year for that, and it just didn't really happen. He ends up going down to the AHL, and that's for a lot of reasons outside of his control, right? The the general state of chaos surrounding the team. He also is not wasn't performing statistically on the ice, but it's the kind of thing where once that trajectory gets disrupted, like as you said, you're this is a swing season a little bit for Vasily Pod Colson because it's a contract year. His, it's a contract year, and you know you know what happens is. Look, the Canucks have draft. They've kept drafting wingers after him, right? There's wingers coming up in the system behind him. You, as you get out of your ELC, you stop being as cheap. You stop being as you know cost controlled going into the future. Your position in the lineup is up for grabs all of a sudden. So yep. it's not expecting him to have this you know 25 goal breakout or anything. It's just recognizing where he is in his career. If he doesn't meaningfully progress from last year. It, it's a major problem. It's a major problem going forward. I, I want to bring up something too. Like, I think, you know, this year is a really crucial one. It's contract year for him. You know, you, you definitely want to see him do better than he did in his rookie season. This is a guy with top 10 draft capital. And I do think if you don't see that this year, especially if he only plays like 60 games and is a somewhat regular healthy scratch at this point in his career, you know, I, I call it just a guy territory where it's like, you, you don't have real value. You'd probably get claimed off waivers, but you couldn't be traded for like a haul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's also not territory that you can't come back from, you know, like I, I, when I say just a guy territory, it sounds dismissive, but it's more about like an industry perception and overall value thing, you know, where, where you're most likely to sign like a one year show me contract. And, and it's just like the, the sort of, um, bloom is off the rose a little bit, but, but a good example is Cole Lind, like Cole Lind reached just a guy territory with the Canucks. And then when he was selected by the Kraken in the expansion draft, people were like, no problem for the mm. well, guy just had a historic Calder cup scoring run in the playoffs. And I would be 0% surprised if one of the reasons that the Kraken were comfortable moving on from Daniel Sprong is they've got him ready to play. Like, don't be shocked if the Cole Lind renaissance is upon us in November. You're, you're anticipating a Cole Lind, Jared McCann, uh, two-headed monster down and in Seattle? I'm just saying, his profile's beginning to look a little Carter Verhage. So... It's a good point. Though, Carter right? Verhage. Like, I meant to, like, put the Y on the end, and it's like... Carter Verhage-ish. Carter Verhage. Yeah. Sure. I get it. Um, it is a good point. Like, it's... <laughs> It becomes more difficult for you to establish yourself as an NHL player when it takes a little longer, but mm-hmm. it doesn't become impossible. By no means. The opportunities are still out there, especially when you have the potential upside uh, and, and that the, and the, calls, and the rare calls profile. Does. Yeah, and the physical. He's going to get a lot of looks. The physical attributes, et cetera. Um, it is Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, and we are now very pleased to be joined on the line uh, from the Windsor Spitfires in the OHL. And now with the Canucks Young Stars team in Penticton just off the ice, uh, he is Jacob Mayette. Jacob, thanks very much for taking some time to chat with us. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? How are you guys doing? Uh, we're doing really well. We're excited for the Young Stars tournament. I, be- I bet you are as well. What was it like to uh, to get on the ice with the group, with the guys up there today? Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm super excited to be here, and uh, we just had a really good skate. You know, uh, tempo was really high today, which I think we all needed. You know, we've been out, off the ice for a couple of days now, so it was good practice, and uh, I think we're all just super excited to to get the games going. 
Jacob, thanks for joining us. Can you give us a sense of what Prospect Camp has been like since it opened? Uh, have you been to the Okanagan before, and what have you seen with your uh, new Prospect Tournament teammates over the past couple of days? Yeah, we just, uh, I mean, this is our first time on the ice today, but uh, last couple of days we've just kind of been chilling. You know, we had medicals and stuff uh, yesterday, and uh, yeah, it's been good. But, um, no, it's my first time kind of down in this area, and it's uh, it's honestly really cool. Like, I mean, being from Ontario, you don't really <laughs> see these, like, mountains and stuff out here. It's super cool. But, yeah, I mean, all the boys look pretty good. It's, you know, like everyone out there has something that you're kind of like, wow, it's, you know, they're really good at. And, and you can pick up on a lot from everyone. And mm. I think we're all, uh, like I said, just super excited to, you know, be a team here and uh, get games going. Tell us a little bit about how the opportunity with the Canucks came together and, you know, the, the process of getting the invite and deciding and, you know, ending up, as you said, from Ontario, from the OHL out here on the West Coast in their prospect camp. Yeah, I think just, uh, I mean, I thought I had a pretty good year, so I was hoping, uh, you know, to end up somewhere. And, and then my agent just called me one day and said, uh, said the Canucks want to have you out uh, to camp. And, you know, I was just super thrilled. That, you know, it's my first time at a camp, so uh, other than, like, the development camp. But it's uh, super cool. I mean, this, this organization's you know, you know, super good, world-class organization for sure. And, you know, I'm just super, uh, super happy I'm here. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot to learn. And, and I'm just trying to do my best out here. And, uh, yeah. Jacob, playing for the Windsor Spitfires in the OHL's Western Conference, you've seen a fair bit of and perhaps even tried to forecheck against uh, a guy who's on the blue line at the Prospect Tournament in Kirill Kudryatsev. Um, what can you tell us about his game? Uh, what's the scouting report that you have as a, as a guy who's been on the other side of the ice in the OHL with him? Yeah, I mean, uh, going into every game against Sue, you know, you know he's back there and he's you kind of hope he sneak on the ice and he's not out there because uh, he's just so he's just so skilled and and uh, you know super defensive player and it's it's honestly always really hard to get by him but yeah he just he looks really good you know he's he just plays the game right and uh, yeah I just never really want to be playing against him because he's he's such a good player. You also are former teammates with another invite at this camp in Braden Bowman and bear with me on this one I just want to I just want to check on this because coaches poll in the OHL's Western Conference, you were the most underrated player, according to OHL coaches in the Western Conference, and, and your former teammate and fellow uh, Canucks camp invite, Braden Bowman, was the second most underrated player on that poll. Um, is it, how do you like, if you're more underrated than another guy, isn't he technically more underrated than you? <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's that's pretty true. I guess when you think about it. that is that is kind of funny. But uh, yeah, no, I played with Bonesy in uh, in Guelph for a bit, and uh, I mean, he's just a really talented player. I mean, if he gets a chance in front, he's he's not missing it. And yeah, I think now you know going into the, the OHL like year again, I think uh, I think yeah, he's definitely rated now, and and people you know look to see when he's on the ice because this will make you pay for uh, anything you give him really. Uh, last couple of years, you've been playing with the Windsor Spitfires head coach, uh, a familiar name for NHL fans, Mark Savard. And, you know, just looking at your profile, 52 assists in 67 games this last year for Windsor. So obviously you've got a lot of playmaking ability and, you know, Mark Savard, one of the best playmakers of his generation in the NHL. What's it been like being coached by him? What have you learned playing for, for Mark Savard in Windsor? Yeah, no, uh, you know, ever since I came over to Windsor and, and Savvy was our head coach, you know, we bonded right away and, you know, he put a lot of trust in me and, and I, I've learned so much from him. I mean, 
he's honestly been the most helpful coach I've had and, you know, developing my game. And, and uh, yeah, I've learned so much from him. You know, just, just what he's done in the NHL is pretty uh, remarkable. And, and yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's just a really good guy, a great coach. And, you know, I'm too bad he's not back in Windsor. He's, you know, moved on to Calgary. But I've learned, uh, honestly, everything from him is, you know, I was kind of just developing my game. He's been, uh, he's been amazing. Have you been texting? Will he be in town to watch the tournament, given uh, his relationship with the Flames this weekend? No, I, I've actually I haven't talked to him, but uh, I should reach out for sure. If he's around. Um, <laughs> Try to get a of, dinner, man. Oh, shit, so one, one of my teammates is uh, is on Calgary, so I think uh, he'll let me know if Savvy's around. I'll have, go, I'll have to go say what's up for sure. How do you approach as an invite? this opportunity uh what does this week mean to you and and how have you been thinking about it in terms of psyching yourself up for the games this weekend yeah i mean i uh you know i definitely like coming in uh you know being a free agent and stuff just, just so uh, i can show everyone you know what i can do because you know not many people i guess have seen it and uh yeah i just come in here just you know just doing my best i can and you know that's all i can really do and see what the future holds for me and and yeah i just want to come in play my game you know just just show everyone what i can do for fans who are going to be watching uh, online this weekend or who are going to be there in penticton you know who might not be familiar with your game give us a sense of what kind of game you play like what are your strengths what they what should they be looking for out there from you yeah i think uh i think i'm just a two-way forward i mean uh i know i work hard just as hard as i do in the d zone as the offensive zone and you know, I definitely uh, make plays with, you know, I set up my teammates for, you know, good chances. And yeah, I think I just, just a guy that just plays the game, right. You know, I'm not, not the flashiest guy in the world, but I just, you know, I get stuff done, just, just keeping it simple. And, and yeah, I just, you know, give it, give it 110% uh, every night. Jacob, really appreciate the time and uh, best of luck. We'll be watching closely at the tournament this weekend. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. That is Jacob Mayette uh, of the Windsor Spitfires and also playing for uh, the Canucks Young Stars team uh, at Prospects Camp, or Rookie Camp, I should say, uh, for the Vancouver Canucks this year. And I I did have to laugh that two of the the top two underrated players in the OHL Western Conference both find their way to... Sorry, the top three. Is the third one as well? Kirill Kudrasov. Was number three? (laughs) Yeah. So, so again, he was in fact the most underrated because he was third on the underrated poll. It's really hard to be most underrated. So if you're, yes, it is. Well, I mean, that was the Barkov conversation forever, right? It's like, yeah. stop it. Stop saying he's underrated. If you're so underrated, you're rated. You're, in fact, you might become overrated yes. by being underrated. Very, very quickly. It's a very odd thing. Um. Uh. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> the idea, the idea of the Canucks having three most underrated is just like what I was going to say brain. is if you're trying to like project, if you want to look really, really smart to whatever subset of people you know that cares about things like this, which you know probably not very big, probably probably if, us. If you're trying exactly, if you're trying to predict <laughs> who the Canucks are going to draft in the late rounds or who they're going to invite to prospect or young stars, prospect development camp or young stars, just check out the uh, the OHL's most underrated players list. Yeah, well, especially if they have a history of having recently played for the Guelph Storm, right? I mean, obviously, the the Scott Walker connection, obviously running strong. Um, Mayette was, of course, a former Guelph Storm form player. Um, Braden Bowman, an invite, plays for the Guelph Storm. And then, of course, we've got uh, Vilmer. Vilmer Ulrichsen, who will go. I'm so excited to watch Vilmer Ulrichsen play against 
the Calgary Flames prospect named Klapka. Do you know who Klapka is? I've heard the name, but he, I couldn't tell you. He's like about six him. foot nine. Amazing. It's so good. <laughs> what? He's really? A, he, oh, he's a big boy. Yeah. No, it's going to be funny to watch them both. Like, I really need a puck battle. I need an Ulrichson Klapka. Is Klapka D forward? Forward, yeah. And he's wow. pretty good. And he's pretty six good. Six foot nine forward. Got hands, too. Like, there's, there's, like with Ulrichson, there's something there. I'm not sure it's like future NHL there, but right. like. There's something there, and uh, so I'm excited. I is, really need to see a collision. Is <laughs> is Ulrichson? Now, you do you mean a collision in like the metaphorical sense of like no. a battle, or just literally a physical collision? A, a phys- <laughs> I, I want to see one of them hit the other one. Yeah, you're like Vince McMahon. You're like, I just want to see two big guys run into each other. <laughs> That's my greatest goal in life. I mean, are you? Do you not like hockey? <laughs> <laughs> the bigger, the better. Um, or is that is Alrickson? Is he the player you're most excited to see at Penticton this no, weekend? I, so I would call. I would say it's Hunter Brustevich. And for this reason, like we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but so many of the Canucks players on this prospect team have a lot of like AHL experience. You're talking about guys mm. like Daniela Klimovich who have multiple years of AHL experience, Arshdeep Baines, who's like not just played in the AHL, but like moved up an AHL lineup. You've got guys like Akito Hirose who's 24 and spent seven games in the NHL and looked not remotely out of place. Like you've got some really experienced guys and I would expect the Canucks prospects to be one of the most experienced teams and to win a lot of games at this tournament. But what they don't have a lot of is the Brustevich tier guys, like guys who, from the perspective of like an NHL amateur scout, right? An NHL amateur scout who's like mining future upside would be like, ooh, I really like that guy. Or like, oh, that guy, you know, Brustevich is sort of the standout as like a, a, a young guy with potential. So if we go to this tournament, if I come back from this tournament and I'm talking about how great Hirose or Arshdeep Baines looked, it's like, yeah, that's kind of a baseline expectation for them, right? If I'm coming back from this tournament and Hunter Brustevich looked great, it's like, oh, wow. You know, like that means something mm. completely different based on his age and the, the stage of his development and and his long-term upside. Yeah, it's, it is the kind of tournament where you have to do such an adjustment for age in particular, right? Yeah. Like it, it's a huge, so, huge range so of, of the in the age spectrum. Ulrichson is six foot six, by the way, just mm-hmm. in case you were wondering. And uh, and 215 pounds for context. Klapka is six foot eight, 236 pounds. And people are also pointing out, and I had forgotten about this, but because uh, uh, Klapka was in the AHL last year for Calgary's farm team, and yeah. Alex Kanik Leipert fought him, dropped the gloves yeah. with him at six. <laughs> Klapka listed at six foot eight, 235 on Hockey DB. That's a big fella. So shout out to Alex Kanik Leipert for that. Uh, honestly, always shout out to Alex Kanik Leipert. Guy's awesome. Uh, producer Dom has grown tired of the show. He's telling us to wrap things up. So I will I will follow Dom's orders. Uh, I, I, I would say those are two independent facts. <laughs> Durance uh, is off to Penticton with live on the ground coverage of Penticton Young Stars starting tomorrow. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with that and a whole lot more right here. Sportsnet 650.